Will you pray with me? Gracious and holy God, we enter into your presence with great expectations. May the meditations of our hearts and minds and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. Amen. I was the new girl in town. It was the first day of school, and as I looked around and took inventory, I realized real quick I did not look like any of the other girls. It was the mid-70s, and when I arrived in Lubbock, Texas, these girls were wearing pantyhose, bouffant hairdos, um, high heels, and blue eyeshadow, right? Am I right? And I had entered the school in my knee socks, penny loafers, braids down the side of my face, and just a tiny bit of mascara. I did not look anything like any of the other girls. But I was always this kid that was up for an adventure. And so when my parents decided to move from Twin Falls, Idaho, to Lubbock, Texas, I took it on as a great adventure. And so I decided to make the best of that moment, and I asked one simple question. I simply asked, What do you guys do for fun? Boy, that was it. They took one look at me. Not only did I look different, I sounded different. And they said, where, oh, where are you from, girl? (laughs) I had arrived in this very uncertain place in my life, a place between what things that I knew and had navigated very well to a place that I did not know and really did not understand very well. I was in this minimal, a liminal space uh, between someone that I used to be on my road to becoming some new person, and yet I had not yet arrived. And so that time in between became kind of an emotionally exhausting time for me. The Israelites lived in this liminal space as well. They were no longer in exile. They had returned to their homeland, but they returned to something that they no longer recognized as home. After 60 years in exile, in a foreign land of Babylon, they had come home to Judah. Many returned hoping to take up farming on the family land again and to return to the the religious customs that their ancestors had left them with. But what they found when they got there was that their land had become occupied even by their own people, people who did not own it themselves. As they were taken off in captivity, those who left behind took occupation of their land, their farms. And then they also found that the temple was a pile of rubble, that it had been destroyed, that it had been stripped of all its religious artifacts, its silver and its gold. What they found, though, was a rebuilding program, a time to stop and to install um, things that would rebuild this temple, this way of life. But what had happened is that that building program had stalled out because all of the skilled laborers were no longer around. They had died, most of them, in exile. The resident prophets of the day had their work cut out for them. They had the job of warning people when they got too close to playing with fire, but they also had this amazing job of uplifting and encouraging the people when they were in the midst of anguish and suffering. 
So in this post-exile time, God's people had returned home to only face a very uncertain future. They began to bemoan their plight, as we humans will, when we don't know where we're at or where we're going. They wondered even if maybe they should return to exile, a place where at least they understood what was expected of them. It's in this setting that our prophet Haggai preaches five sermons over a four-month period in 520 BCE. Each of these sermons is offered as a message of hope and encouragement, along with a challenge to remember who they are. And most importantly, whose they are. Today's scripture is one of those sermons. It's the third one in the series, a message that is timely for us today. Let's listen now to what God has to say through the prophet Haggai. I'll pick up in the first chapter, uh, verse 15b, and go through the second chapter, verse 9. Listen now for what God has to say. In the second year of King Darius, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zebella, son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you that saw this house as it was in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Is it not in your sight as nothing? Yet now take courage, O Zerubbabel, says the Lord. Take courage, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Take courage, all the people of the land, says the Lord. Work. For I am with you, says the Lord of hosts, according to the promise that I made you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit abides among you. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once again in a little while I shall shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I shall shake all the nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with splendor, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The latter splendor of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give prosperity, says the Lord of hosts. May God add blessing to the reading of this holy scripture. Scholars don't know much about Haggai. They don't know how old he is. They don't really know what his background is. They don't know if he was part of the people that went into exile or if he was part of the people that stayed in the land of Judah. But the fact that they do not know much about him actually lends a lot of weight to the messages that he delivers. We know that he delivered this sermon on precisely October 17th, 520 BCE, because he dates it at the beginning of his sermon. And on that fact, all scholars agree. The exhausted remnant of God's people stood on this threshold between a former life in captivity and now moving towards an uncertain future in freedom. 
For them, it was more than just a change of location, more than a job transfer where they knew what to expect when they got to their destination. It was more like they found themselves with an open-ended future, one that was undefined, one that was fuzzy at best. It was a liminal time filled with disorientation and a new structure that was emerging out of something that did not resemble or look anything like the old hierarchies that they had become accustomed to. They began to explore new possibilities by launching this rebuilding of the temple campaign. But as they worked, criticism grew from the old-timers, the ones who remembered what it was like before it was destroyed. These old members in the community had nothing good to say that about what was emerging out of the rubble on the spot of the temple. So Haggai acknowledges their memories. He acknowledges the disappointment with which they grumble. But then he begins to point out that, you know, it may not look like it did, at least not yet. And then he challenges them to get out of the way of their highly tell held uh, expectations of an era that has gone by and instead embrace with confidence what God is doing in the present. And then he says, take courage. Here's what we do when we're in this uncertain times. We get to work. God gives us a job because God is with us. The same God, the same Spirit abides with us today that abi- abi- uh, abided with our ancestors in the desert. The same God that abides with our children in the future. A future which this God holds, he reminds us. A future filled with goodness and peace. It is the task of every generation to take courage in God's goodness and to work on behalf of God's purpose within that time, even when that time is uncertain or not so clear. So this story got me to thinking about what kind of thresholds this local congregation is standing on. What places are we standing when we can look back and see one thing in our past and and maybe some unknowns in our future? We're still in a time of transition between one beloved pastor and the next pastor. That process is going well, I'd say, but we have a lot of work to do to gain each other's trust and to begin to walk step in step side by side with each other. And we are taking on a, a seriously looking at a change in our own local church governance. We have one foot in an old system that we've become accustomed to, that we have operated under for many, many years, and we are putting our foot out in faith into a new system that we do not know all the implications for us under that new system. And yet, we are faithfully exploring it. Even as a denomination, the United Methodist Church is faced in, is standing in this liminal space, this liminal time between a time of defined expectations into a new undefined time when we are uncertain about what the future might hold for us. I've been reading author Susan Beaumont about these, this 
this leadership in a time of where we don't know where we're going. She talks about it as a liminal space. And she says this about it. It's a time when people have a tendency to hang on to institutional memories. But the problem with our institutional memories is that they have changed. That our past experiences have, because of those, the change in those experiences have thrown us into this time of uncertainty. We hold on to remnants that are no longer fully functional out of our past. And yet, we have not yet arrived to what we expect the future to be. There's no sense of normalcy yet. We struggle with what we cannot define. The future remains uncertain. It's fuzzy. The endpoints are not known. And so we stand in this space having to build a bridge one board at a time without having the ability to see where that bridge will end. Before we can reorient ourselves into a new reality, we must stay in this liminal space for a time. And it is in this space that the Celtics call it a thin space, a space where the people of God can actually reach out and touch the hand of God. Because it is in this space, Henry Nouwen reminds us, when we find and experience the abiding spirit of God at work among us. It is also in this space, if we allow God to do God's work, that we will experience growth and healing and reconciliation. But it can be a pretty disorienting time. And so what the prophet offers us, and and it's good advice, is that we must simply get to work. We must simply continue to be the people of God in our community. And so on November 24, 2019, 2,539 years after Haggai delivered that sermon to his congregation, we will be joining them in an act of worship that will outshine all the gold and silver that's available to this world. We call it Great Day of Service. It's a time when we gather not only to worship, but to put our hands to work in a spirit of worship. When we will ensure that literally hundreds of families across our county might be fed on Thanksgiving. After a short commission service at 8.30 in this worship service, we will be sent out to buy the goods, to pack boxes, to put food together for these families. And then at the uh, 10.45 service over at Pecan Street and the 10.50 service in here, we will be commissioned to actually assemble those boxes. And so we will do so during our worship time. We will put our hands and feet to work. We will be the people of God. And we will pack these boxes and deliver them to families across our county. I've talked with Ashley, and we still need people to help us do that. We need people who can deliver. We need people who can shop. We need people who can assemble. Because the more we can pull together, the more people we can serve the more we can be who God is calling us to be in this liminal time. 
But I also invite you, after we do our work, to return to this place, this holy and sacred liminal space, because at 12 o'clock over in the uh, Asbury Hall, we will meet as the Decatur Methodist family to break bread. We will sit across the table from one another and we will give thanks to the God who abides with us, even in uncertain times. Thanks be to God. Amen.